Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, the podcast who's exploring all the innovators and having great discussions about people really changing healthcare for the better. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today is a very exciting episode. I know I say that a lot, but joining me is Dr. Robert Goldberg, co-founder and vice president of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest. Uh, He's been published in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, National Review, and many, many more. Today, we're talking about tabloid medicine, the fear-mongering, sensationalism, and really headline healthcare within the internet age. Dr. Goldberg, thanks for taking the time to join us. I'm always honored to um, be interviewed by alumni of Butler University. <laughs> Go dogs! <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was funny. We uh, I was looking at uh, the CMPI website, and whole, and lo and behold, you know our yeah. little, little university here in Indianapolis. Uh, That's right. Uh, known for our basketball, but also putting a lot of alumni in very interesting positions yes. to change healthcare. How about that? These are these are because uh, it's a scrappy school with uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And it's should only be that it should only continue to to do that. I I hope so. So we'll have to send this to all the administrators over there to university yes. and make yeah. sure that hey, you guys are making waves. <laughs> so keep right. it up, right? Right. <laughs> well, tabloid right. medicine is a term. I, I really found it fascinating when we were going over the notes for the show and, and really researching. Um, you wrote a book ten years ago by the same title or very similar type of a title. Give us an overview of this of your work and how you settled on the term tabloid medicine. So the um, the, the term tabloid medicine uh, stems from the fact that a tabloid newspaper was always led with headlines that were very sensational. If it bleeds, it leads was the the mantra. And uh, what I was concerned about back then, and, and still concerned about, is that the uh, internet was a prime um, breeding ground for the kind of sensational disinformation about the, the dangers of medicine, um, particularly new, new medicines. Uh, and as a result, people would begin to not take medicines accordingly. And, you know, the book really gives some specific examples, including the, um, the, whole, the vaccines back then. And we can talk about vaccines now because the same situations happening now, though now it's being led by governors of different states, vaccines and antidepressants, um, uh, cholesterol medications, and, and just talked about in generally that the, the internet can be a very great source because everyone uses the internet and we're, um, to, to, that's the first thing people do now when they hear about a diagnosis, they go on the internet. Um, but the, Willingness of certain groups to use the internet to mislead and fan the flames of fear about medicines is still pervasive. And in some respects, even though the amount of better information has grown, so has the, the use of the internet for these problematic purposes. Yeah, and you can totally see that in like you said, the internet has brought so much good. I mean, so much free flowing information there. I mean, what is it? There's more information every day being uploaded to the internet than oh, yeah. 
the yeah. past human history combined. It's like, wow, yeah. the, 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 yeah. the amount that you could look up is incredible, but it goes back to, well, it's incredible the amount of, of things going online, but then you bring credibility into issue as well and make sure you're finding the right type of sources. Right, right. And um, again, I agree with you that there's a great amount of information and people are using it, uh, most people are using responsibly, average individuals. I think what we're seeing now, unfortunately, is the use of social media to regulate speech, um, something that I frankly didn't anticipate. Um, more concerned about the use of the internet to spread fear because fear spreads more rapidly than fact. Um, what we see now is just the outright censoring of, of different points of view, even the uh, views that I don't agree with in some cases. And I think that that's antithetical to, to science and to, you know, good clinical decision-making on the part of patients and their providers. We do see that a lot, and it has been interesting to see kind of the evolution of social media, where it was a way uh, Facebook started just for college kids. Uh, you had to have a college email address to, to yeah. join it, right? <laughs> and then yeah. they connected with the people, long lost friends from high school, and then it grows from there, uh, blossoms into, I hate to use it, but you know the, the term fake news starts to pr- proliferate a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm all fine with, look, I am, uh, I guess I am somebody who's fine with fake news as long as other news is allowed to permeate. I mean, the, the truth is not instantaneous or, or self-correcting. Uh, it, I mean, the truth is self-correcting. And when I wrote the book, you know, I was concerned that the internet was being used by first movers to sort of set a benchmark in people's minds about what was safe and what wasn't what was good and wasn't. So um, I think that's changed a little bit, but it's been replaced by this notion that um, one viewpoint is right and one viewpoint is is wrong. And even when it is wrong, scientifically wrong, uh, I I think now people's health is better served by hearing everything out. Because now what happens is if you tell people you shouldn't read that, guess what they're going to do? (laughs) <laughs> They'll read that. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so, it's a kind yeah. of knee-jerk reaction against that. And and yeah, again, going back to the credibility of sources, you know, put the facts out there. Let people jump to their own conclusions once they have all the information. And uh, in my opinion, yeah. we're severely lacking that type of journalism across a wide variety yes. of topics. And yeah. you know, the fun thing about science is that not everything is considered a law of science. There's very few things. There's a lot of theories out there. You know, I, I tell people that, you know, a long time ago, everybody thought that the world was flat and that was considered to be a scientific fact. And lo and behold, things change as we continue to learn and experiment. But like you said, I think that takes a lot of free flowing information and not just censoring it. So you brought up vaccines, very interesting topic, and it's always going to be relevant as people continue to learn, but a lot of people talk about either you are for vaccines or you're against vaccines. And if you're, you're against right, vaccines, right. you know, you're part of these wackos, these anti-vaxxers and all that kind of you know, thing. But going through it from, from my family, going through the infant vaccine schedule, um, 
we belong to a direct primary care practice and our doctor asked us, Hey, would you like the normal schedule and alternative schedule? And it was something that we were just unprepared for to say, what do you, what, what is an alternative schedule? What did you see when you were researching your book and then the 10 years subsequent that revolved around vaccines and why is this such, again, a hot topic or even sensational type of a medical trend? Well, vaccines have always been a challenge because you're injecting healthy people with a inactivated or attenuated virus, right? And this goes back even to the days of the uh, cowpox inoculation that uh, Jenner helped promote. Uh, the fear of putting something inside of your body is something that I think a lot of people share. However, the, the resistance to vaccines in recent years took on sort of a new force because it was initially perpetuated by uh, a doctor uh, published in a medical journal and then aggressively promoted by the media as an issue. So the panic, rather, and before the other facts could come in, the panic had already spread. Um, and that's where the alternative vaccine schedule sort of came up. Um, and the, now we're at a point where vaccine skepticism is, is high and the people that were promoting the panic in the 1990s are the ones saying, if you're worried about vaccines or vaccine resistant, then you're an idiot. But at the same time, these same people are also questioning the safety and the reliability of the vaccine that's being produced for, for COVID. So uh, again, the, you know, if you could use the, the social media to have a conversation with people that are concerned, um, that would be a great thing, but it's been drowned out by, the, uh, by uh, ideological manipulation mm-hmm. and still is being drowned out. I mean, it's gone beyond, you know, uh, mothers in, um, you know, swanky parts of Brooklyn having uh, chicken pox parties to expose their kids to, to, to immunization. It's become a uh, political tool, and that's a problem. And I, you know, with respect to the issue of how do you deal with patients, I, you know, my, my initial, you know, back in the day, I was writing, said people that, I sort of felt the same way, that people that are worried about vaccines, won't immunize their kids, should be treated like pariahs. And I'm thinking that's probably the wrong way to get people to trust something. By the way, that's where social media can also play a valuable role is to you know, provide people with information. And look, you're not going to exempt people from vaccines, um, but the way to get people to uh, comply is to explain and be transparent about everything. That's kind of a long-winded answer, but we're still grappling with that today. Uh, but I think the way in which the experts are trying to uh, eliminate vaccine resistance is, is wrongheaded. It, it's uh, we decried bullying in schools as kids. And, and now all we see like a social media, again, the prevalence of the internet is there's a lot of online bullying to people. That's right. Do that. That's a great point. Yeah. Guess what? The, the, you know, the, the cancel culture uh, as they call it now. Yes. And, yeah. And like how is this not a new form of bullying to people? <laughs> But it's okay because if their views aren't the same as yours, then for some reason people give themselves yeah. a pass. And and I, I agree with you. It's it's education, it's explanation, it's 
look, the reason why we don't have wide, uh, wide outbreaks of smallpox and polio anymore, guess what? <laughs> yeah. so we had a very effective vaccines and people got them, right? So fast forwarding the current COVID pandemic, uh, barriers to care is something that um, you, know, you like to touch upon and we like to touch upon too, because there's nothing more powerful in actual Medicare not necessarily that the you know the the buzzword of healthcare uh, that encompasses a lot of different things, but in medical care between a doctor and a patient, we want to break down all the barriers to care, and that's something that you touch upon a lot as these barriers keep building and building and building over the years, and then misinformation and people going to Doctor Google or Doctor WebMD um, really kind of shoot themselves in the yeah. foot more 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 often than not and driving anxiety and all that yes, kind of. Yeah. A, of a thing. Um, besides the government mandated shutdowns of doctor's offices that we saw, you know, at the start of the COVID pandemic here, um, you talk a lot about other various types of barriers to receiving care. Most immediately, like you said, you mean if you're uh, going to the doctor is more dangerous than not going to the doctor. What other, what other types of barriers do you encounter in your research and within your, your institute? Our focus at CMPI has been sort of getting access to newer uh, medications and newer treatments that have a clinical benefit. And the, the barriers increasingly are high deductible plans. People should not have to organize a bake sale to pay for their insulin or for their cancer surgery. But, uh, and that flows out of these narrow networks, which are designed to I think limiting the access doesn't make much sense. It's kind of productive, but it's another another barrier. Uh, I think step therapy is a barrier that's growing. Um, and all these things, you know, we've shown through the literature and our own research that that makes people less likely to comply and it makes people sicker. It's so counterproductive. At the same time, your ability to, until recently, communicate with your doctor, if you actually have a relationship with your physician was counterproductive. Doctors were, I'm all for, you know, value-based purchasing and so on, but you can't do it at the expense of the relationship with the physician that is essential to delivering the value. Uh, and that's been until, you know, this, I think we're seeing a shift towards acknowledging that maybe we can actually pay doctor for their cognitive time and effort as a way of managing care. Even with all that being said, if you're still going to put into place these one-size-fits-all barriers to new medicines in the form of step therapy, prior authorization, I mean, prior auth is something that doctors have to hire staff to, to do, limited networks instead of any willing provider, uh, I think these are barriers that they need to be torn down. I mean, I think what we saw during the pandemic is quite obvious that things for setting aside the people with, people with covid Waving all the um, fail first and all the other stuff pro and, and trying to eliminate all the financial barriers to care probably saved more lives than otherwise would have been lost because of the fact that people weren't going to the doctor for Alzheimer's and heart failure and cancer mm -hmm. and things like that. Everything that we did to respond to the pandemic was removing barriers. So the last thing we want to do in this day and age is put them back on. I mean, they were stupid to begin with, and they cost us a hell of a lot uh, during the pandemic. Why continue? It's a great so, point. And yeah. That's yeah. something that we've, we've scratched our heads with, right? If, 
if we can just with the wave of a pen allow Medicare patients in rural areas or in urban areas to now access telehealth, why the hell weren't we doing that before? You know, yeah, CMS, yeah. What, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, the, the freedom that's, I, I don't bother my do- the doctor, but if, if I have a question, I can call him up. He'll pick up the phone or the nurse will talk to me. We'll have a, a real conversation. It, it's part of my flow of life. And I think, as you pointed out, now being able to, if you're a Medicare patient, for instance, you should be able to go to see any doctor you want. And if you can't see them physically, you can see them virtually. You can begin to piece together personalized care, which really should is the, you know, the goal of what you guys are doing and should be the gold standard for how we deliver. Again, we provide health insurance and there's coverage, but coverage is not care. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about providing, allowing people to obtain the care they need, sometimes not just when they're sick, but to keep people healthy. That's the other novel idea. It's like, Maybe we should just, uh, instead of flooding our hospitals with people, maybe we should try to keep people healthy and keep people at home and, and have doctors get paid for that as well, you know, yep. doing a good job. Yep, yep. And, you know, I'm smiling, I'm beaming ear to ear because longtime listeners will, will pick up on some of those key uh, phrases that you just said that yeah. I keep shouting from the, from the mountaintops, right? You know, health, health insurance does not equal medical care. No, it does <laughs> Coverage not. does not equal care. And yeah. You talk about, you know, the barriers to continuity of care and how important it is to have a doctor that sees you in your own environment, whether it's a house call or just being able to build that familiarity. That's important. That's important. And I know I've I got some personal experience with that throughout my family and kind of why we founded Freedom HealthWorks in the first place. But, you know, you're, you're right there with it. And people see Medicare as kind of the gold standard of health insurance. And they're like, you know, once I hit 65 years old, I got it made. I'm on easy street. Yeah. I think a lot of people realize that's not the case. I, I, I am uh, looking at Medicare plans this year. And I can tell you that just like with every other kind of health insurance, the best way to get care is to stay healthy. Because if you start dealing with autoimmune disorders or cancer, the choices are limited and the out-of-pocket cost for prescription drugs is astronomical. And again, there's no reason why this should be, except that the system is organized around the financial sustainability of the plans and not the well-being of, of the patients. Um, so uh, don't get me started about Medicare because I kept on looking, because I've dealt with this uh, you know, from the advocacy side for years, but how is this possible that you pay $16,000 for a drug that keeps you out of the hospital, that keeps you alive. Um, I don't care how, you know, it, it, we, the, whole, the whole system should be allowing doctors to provide people with complete solutions so that if the drug is indicated, it's covered. You know, if the continuity of care is necessary, it's covered. And we are technologically able to do that now. I have a big problem with the way Medicare is currently constructed. I'm, I'm, just because I, I see this glaring limitation, not just on the use of medicines, but on the use of new diagnostics, for instance, that help personalize care. My friend, Mark Fendrick, who's at the University of Michigan, I don't know if you ever played them in basketball at any point. Um, but uh, our, uh, our head coach was an assistant up there, actually. Oh, that's right. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
said, we have enough money in the healthcare system to deliver all the care that we need. What we have to do is spend more money on the care that works and less money on the care that doesn't work. I mean, apart from diagnostics and big data, which you know we can also talk about, the ultimate decisor of delivering high-value care is the physician. And if you arm the physician with the right tools and the right information, doctors will be able to deliver better care. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a whole different paradigm from what we currently have. Uh, I'm a little bit hopeful that we'll get some change. But for the time being, those barriers to care still exist, and we need to continue to tear them down. In emphasizing that that the role of the, of the physician, especially that primary care physician, which I believe that they have vacated over the past couple of decades, yeah. is to be that quarterback, to be that advisor. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something to me before that said people need an advisor, not necessarily a mechanic every time they go to the doctor. That's right. Right. And, exactly right. Yeah. And, yeah. and we don't, we don't, they're not paid up. They're not, they're not set up. Most of them who are outside of a DPC or a concierge relationship, they can't, they can't make a living unless they act as mechanics and yeah. a healthy patient is not profitable for the medical industry. That, I mean, you time. just hit the nail on the head. The insurance industry, health insurance industry ran restaurants. They would turn people away that were hungry because it would bite into the, think about that, you know? Um, at the same time, if you, um, try to provide a, a meal to a patient or to an individual that was customized for them, um, that also would get pushed back. But I, I think the, I mean, the point is you should be paid to keep people healthy as best as possible. We don't do enough of that in the, the system. And a larger part of it is because of the barriers that we discussed. And the other part is that some of the advances in technology, uh, machine learning, and so on, that could augment what physicians are doing hasn't been made fully available. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, that's, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dr. Goldberg, we're going to take a quick break, hear back from some of our sponsors of Healthcare Americana. And then uh, once Great. we come back, we're going we're gonna to dig into that subject just a little bit more. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs. And employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. 
Welcome back to this episode of Healthcare Americana. I'm Christopher Habig, joined by Dr. Robert Goldberg, discussing a lot of the barriers to care and what physicians and patients can really do to uh, avoid going to Dr. Google, Dr. WebMD, avoid the sensationalism of current uh, internet-based uh, oh knowledge platforms, I would say. But more specifically, thinking about a lot of the, the implications of narrow insurance networks, Dr. Goldberg, Given a lot of what we've seen this summer of 2020, where you know people are kind of fed up with the status quo, do you believe that health insurance is discriminatory against certain groups of people that should be able to access you know affordable, excellent, convenient care, but just are unable to do that? Well, I think I think the answer is yes. I mean, first, um, people, if you're on Medicaid, you have a, a plan that. Um, looks fantastic. The menu of services that are available under Medicaid um, looks fantastic, but you can't get them. Um, and most of the people that can't get them are people that live in inner cities that are poor um, minority communities. So even though the expansion of things like Medicaid and uh, the Children's Health Insurance Plan and the Affordable Care Act uh, was designed to expand coverage. It did not expand access to care. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's inherently discriminatory. It, Secondly, that's, that's true. Sorry to butt in there, but that's true in yeah. rural America as well as consolidation. Well, I was going to say a lot of doctors and yeah. very similar socioeconomic situations in a lot of places between why, rural America and why, inner cities. Yeah. I mean, why should somebody who is diagnosed with cancer have to travel 180, 200 miles to see a doctor? Mm-hmm. And then sit and wait. And it, to me, it's it's unacceptable. I'm sure it is to you. Uh, and there's things we can do to change it. So uh, the second part is that um, the going back to the issue of access to new medicines, insurance companies generate significant amount of cash rebates from pharmaceutical companies um, in exchange for covering their drugs. Those rebates, unlike a rebate when you go to the car dealership doesn't go to you. It goes to the insurance company or the employer uh, at the same time. Uh, so you're paying out of pocket a percentage of the retail price, not the rebated price. And, and that is the, the vast majority of those rebates and the out of pocket chunk of the retail price. So you're getting a double whammy mm-hmm. is uh, that there's about $160 billion worth of that kind of stuff going on. People, the 4% of the sickest patients with cancer, with rheumatoid arthritis, with cystic fibrosis, um, are paying, that 4% is paying about 35% of all the rebates and 35% of all the out-of-pocket costs of drugs. I mean, HHS under the Obama administration said that that kind of benefit design is very, very close to being discriminatory. I happen to think it is. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that, that the, you know, the response is, well, we can't provide coverage if we don't, as both uh, wrong and unacceptable. Premiums are not going up because of the cost of new medicines. Premiums are going up for other factors, including the fact that we're not treating people who have been sick in the past to make them healthy. I mean, the the cheapest uh, underwriting target is a healthy population, right? So why not invest in that? But maybe I'm just a dreamer. I, if anybody has ever run any uh, benefit programs for larger employers, uh, they can tell you that an ounce of prevention is worth 
tens yeah. of thousands of pounds of, of yeah. treatment on the back end. And, uh, you know, we had a good friend of the company who said that, you know, we do colonoscopies for everybody once they hit, you know, a certain age that was 10 years under what most medical experts would, would agree. That's right. And so they were doing it at 30 years old because they started seeing that, you know, 38, 39, 40, 41 year olds, if they ended up getting cancer and it wasn't caught, that blows up their plan. So it's not yeah, only it? from a human health situation, but also from an expense situation that yeah. then trickles downstream. Look, you know, prevention, I always say that during debates, I said, well, if you're really concerned about healthcare costs, then just stop treating people. Death is very, very cost effective. We, we do prevention because we want to keep people healthy and it will save money from the cancer of colon cancer screenings. Um, to, if you can get a disease earlier in the stage, it costs half as much as when the progression has advanced. And the fact of the matter is what you pointed out is something, what your friend did was made a clinical observation that has now become sort of a point of fact, which is we now know that um, there's a surge in the number of younger people getting colon cancer. Well, how do we find that out? We found that out because doctors making using their clinical expertise began to see it and test accordingly. And um, being able to treat patients in that way really is the most effective way of tearing down those barriers, to, those discriminatory barriers too. Absolutely. Now, you've mentioned that the practice of medicine, and, and this, this ties into exactly what we're talking about and really emphasizes it, that the practice of medicine isn't a set of transactions. It's a set of conversations. And yeah. I think that's exactly what we we're just saying there. And, and I love that quote from you um, because that, again, plays into the continuity of care, the trust that I actually have somebody on, you know, quote unquote, speed dial. Um, I'm not sure anybody uh, under the age of 30 knows what speed dial is anymore. Right. But, <laughs> <That's>, you <know. laughs> yeah, you've dated yourself. Uh, I barely, barely. Yeah, I, I, I barely yeah. didn't qualify for that yeah, one. Right. Um, but it's that conversation. That's why I love it. Because if you're not familiar or if you're not comfortable talking about intimate personal issues that might be, you might be experiencing or your family's experiencing or your environment or things aren't great at home, all those things tie into it. And it's not a set of transactions. And I don't know how we thought that we could build a kind of an industrial medical complex yeah. on transactions alone and not conversations and relationships. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it, it, your relationship with your doctor and with your health is it's a relationship. It's the most intimate relationship that you have next to those with your family and your spouses and your kids. But we treat it as if it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's episodic and rather than continuous um, we pay, you know, uh, we, we made it difficult to create, to sustain those conversations, both technologically and financially. Well, I think what we've uh, seen again through COVID is that that system works perfectly fine as long as you're healthy and don't need to see the doctor. Um, and as long as you're just worried about treating disease instead of keeping people healthy. But if your goal is to keep people healthy, and we have the tools to do it, um, it's a disaster. You need a relationship. So that's why we call, you know, that's why companies like Noom and Weight Watchers and Calm um, and Talkspace are exploding because they offer people a convenient 
gateway to uh, access not just care, but a, a relationship. Yeah, and, and I'm just wondering to get your thought curious, how much of that is responsibility of the patient? Um, and is there a link between people not taking that responsibility seriously because they think there's some miracle pill out there that's going to let them lose 200 pounds at the drop of a hat or, you know, fix their high blood pressure. How much is that of people not taking responsibility over their health and not being, I guess, educated or comfortable from a physician standpoint and not having enough time to ask certain types of questions mm -hmm. and build that relationship. Are those two things linked? Yeah. So, you know, John Wanamaker, who, founded one of the first department stores said that I, I know that half of my advertising works. I don't know which half. <laughs> and I think in the case of, of medicine is that we, we don't know, we know there are people there that um, are not uh, self-aware or aware about the, uh, the risks of their lifestyle or behavior. There are people that, are just uh, are waiting for the magic pill, but we don't always know, again, going back to the vaccine issue, what is motivating them. That's why in doing things like prevention, you've got to give people the tools to take the initiative, to simply ask people to go on the internet and figure out a way to uh, lose weight. Well, there's a gazillion, just like every, every magazine print, printed, men's health, women's health, there's a diet, every magazine. I mean, if these diets actually work, you wouldn't see those articles anymore, right? I think we've learned that um, we need to coach and encourage people to do things that, uh, that help them keep healthy. And I think that's basically, I think that's the paradigm for medicine that we ought to be taking. Now, with respect to people with um, diseases like cancer and so on, apart from smoking, you know, those are things that are unpredictable. You know, you can't, uh, stuff just hits you, you know, disease hits you over the head sometimes. There's nothing you can do about it. But sure. Sure. Um, even there, we ought to provide people with a, um, more resources to make more informed and more personalized decisions. And it's not that it's not that difficult. You know, we just have to make it convenient. And I wouldn't say enjoyable, but uh, comfortable. Like, you know, you have to earn people's trust in anything you do. Why not? Why? You know, trust is essential in uh, the, the doctor patient relationship. Why not build on it? Absolutely. It goes back to, you know, the tabloid medicine, like you brought up, how many magazines do you see that say this miracle diet or these uh, miracle pills, or it all gets back to, you have to make some real lifestyle changes. And to make those lifestyle changes, you have to be educated and know what's going on and right. be able to see clearly the entire picture around you. Um, maybe it is stop smoking. Maybe it's Hey, clean out all the junk food and eat smaller meals, but it's lifestyle changes. It's not just these certain diets. Yeah. People end up yeah. failing anyways. Right. Yeah. There's why the, the term fad diet, there's a reason sure. why we call them fads. Right. Yeah. And so following that vein, when somebody is looking at this and they see a, they see a new diet or they have a question and they can't get into their doctor and they go into WebMD or Google symptoms, like we said, the internet can be a, a place of great value, but the problem comes when they don't follow that up with the, with the doctor, right? Like how right. could somebody right. sit here and say, well, I think this is wrong with me. I'm going to go ahead and Google these symptoms. And then that's when the fear mongering and the sensationalism and a lot of the anxiety comes. 
And I'm not saying that's certainly a bad thing because when we go talk to doctors, you want to be educated, informed, ask the right types of questions. You know, is it the fact that people are able to look up a plethora of information or going back to people's behavior? Is it an issue that they don't end up following up with a doctor or even a second opinion to really confirm their biggest fears or say, hey, this is, this is not an issue? Well, again, I think they're both issues. You know, research in studies that I've seen that um, people lie to their doctors. They'll tell them they took medicine or they haven't. But you know that. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. There are uh, you know there are people on clinical trials who violate every every protocol, and they share how to do it with other patients. I guess the the point being that how do you engender the you know you have to get behind the psychological motivations. Like some people are afraid to go to the doctor because, oh, they missed taking their medicine or they, they gained weight or, or they went back to smoking or something. And, um, or they're afraid. They're afraid of, uh, we don't have, again, I think we now have the ability to reach into the lives of patients through, again, not just through telehealth, but, but there's, a, there's an explosion of services that are going up. For example, I just saw something today that um, there's a company, I think it's called 98.6. Mm-hmm. where they deliver um, uh, primary care to ex- their businesses, Medicaid populations. And then there's a whole other program of people that deal with uh, rural health issues, which I think is a vastly underserved market. And I think the, the ability to deliver not just the diagnosis, but that connection, as long as you can get paid for it, uh, or you, uh, people willing to pay for it is very, very valuable. And I think that's going to be the way of the, of the future if there is going to be a uh, free market-based person-centered approach to, to healthcare. Uh, I think it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, not just from a selfish point yeah. of view with our company and what we're doing, yeah. but you know, we're drinking the Kool-Aid too. Um, we, we think this is a superior model. And we fight a lot of those habits. Like you said, as long as people are willing to pay for it, because a lot of people have just grown up or been so like drilled into them that they shouldn't be paying for this type of actual Medicare. That's right. If they're already paying a health insurance premium. And it's like, no, you got to separate these things. These are not the same product. Like we said here. Um, Yeah. Insurance is a financial thing. Think of it as supplemental. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, right. People say, why should I pay for it? Well, I think what's happening now is that some of the employers um, benefit managers going, yeah, we, uh, we have to go beyond what we've done to keep people healthy. And we, these, these are the kinds of services that I think they will, they will pay for. There's a reason that Livongo, which does diabetes, virtual diabetes coaching and Teladoc merged because it all of a sudden it, it opens up, they see an untapped market of people that have diabetes that are not being treated or don't feel comfortable going to a doctor, can't go to a doctor. So I think those kinds of approaches, um, I mean, what you're doing is sort of a platform technology for that kind of patient-centered enterprise on a, com- on a commercial scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't have to pay extra for it. It should be the way in which we finance healthcare is to pay for these kind of things, as opposed to paying for insulin testing strips that people don't need, for instance. There's a lot of that. Yeah. So somehow switch that in people's mind where it says, you know, 
Yeah. You need to ask the question of why am I paying this expensive premium when I'm already getting medical care from a, from my trusted physician? That would be, that would be a light bulb right. moment. I think that really would when, <laughs> when people start to ask that yeah. question. Yeah. Why around. can't I? Yeah. And there's no reason why you can't build a, uh, an actual, look, the, the function of insurance is that the, 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 the more, most subsidized the, 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 the sickest, not the sickest, subsidizing the, the healthiest. But, you know, what if we, I'm sure there's an actuarial way to basically build, um, just like we build 401k plans and invest in portfolios, uh, retirement plans. Personally, we could do the same thing with, with, with care. Mm-hmm. If, if I know that I have uh, diabetes in my family, why can't I work with, with one doctor such as yourself and reach these metrics and get paid you know, and, and have that as a way of um, let insurance companies pay for those kinds of things. And that, I think we're seeing a little bit of that as well, but stuff moves a lot slower than you and I would, would want that. That's for sure. Yes. Especially yeah. when we're swimming against a, uh, a fifth of the United States economy. Uh, <laughs> there's a, yes. a, yeah. a, a large wave of money going the other way, going opposite of us. Uh, that makes things a little bit tough, but uh, yeah. You know, one of the last questions I have for you here is bringing up kind of that actuarial kind of topic. What kind of role does data and machine learning and and artificial intelligence play in medical care today? And how could that change in the near future? Well, right right now, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence is this sort of pattern recognition. Um, It tells you... So it's very, artificial intelligence can be very useful in validating uh, and detecting cancers or reading scans and so on. Um, but as you know, the, the real, and so our AI is very, very good at, for, for that. But the way it's currently being um, produced, it's not a tool for clinical decision-making. It doesn't ask and answer the questions that a doctor asks, which is, well, what if I hadn't given the aspirin with the headache going away. What if I had given? I, I think um, the promise of AI, and there's a great book by Eric Topol called Deep Medicine, which talks about it, where AI can provide you with the full context of the patient, the life they're living, where they came from, uh, and also provide you with a you know predictive, like a, a menu of choices to figure to allow you where to go, you almost like want a ways for patients and doctors being the, the navigator. So AI, to the extent that it looks at cause and effect instead of statistical association, be very powerful. But just a word about big data. Big data is great, but little data is better. I mean, I would rather have the medical records of a uh, hundred people in your practice um, on a you know, holistic level going back till they were kids and being able to analyze and crunch that data, because I think that would be more useful to you as a clinician um, than just sort of coming up with pattern recognition about risk of diabetes. I want to know, it's one thing to say, oh, this person's at risk. The other thing is, no, uh, what should I do if something else changes in their life? Um, And then how do I get them to make the changes that are good for them? Because Health apps are a lot like medicines. If you don't use them, they don't work. And a lot of health apps suck because they don't, they aren't 
trying to be a, a connector between you, the doctor, and, and the patient. It doesn't create those conversations. It doesn't build that trust. So I think to the extent that uh, AI um, allows counterfactual questioning and answering and allows you to get a more intimate knowledge of the person that's seeking care, that's another tool for the kind of revolution in care and health that I would like to see. That's been my biggest issue with population health is that it's looking at, like you said, a lot of people over a shallow amount of time yeah. and a shallow experience. Yeah. And there is no human body that is created the same. I don't care how close we get or anything along those lines. Absolutely. When people talk about population health in terms of, of patient care, I'm sitting here kind of shaking my head thinking, this doesn't apply because we're not widgets on an assembly line. And I know the current medicine, current uh, yeah. healthcare industry teaches kind of that, that kind of habit that, you know, doctors need to see 30, 40 people a day. And then we look at all this data and say, oh, this person's at risk, like you just said, but is that actually true? Am I just at risk based on demographic information or is my lifestyle, my medical history, my environment creating a bigger risk? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's funny because of, uh, we treat, sort of treat the primary care, the disappearing primary care doctor as like a school. Schools used to just be there to educate. Now they're there to feed and to immunize and to provide self-esteem. I mean, we just keep piling things on because it's convenient. And we asked the primary care, oh, you do population health. And by the way, look at social determinants of care. And by the way, you know, we want you to have a uh, patient-centered uh, portal and so on. And instead of, again, building up your ability to make differential diagnosis based upon individual nuances and experiences, AI and tech can amplify that capability, expand that capability, uh, as opposed to what we see now, which is just hit the numbers and you're okay. So it's uh, the application. Oh, we screened X number of people. Well, yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we screened X number of people um, for colorectal cancer, and breast cancer. Well, like you're going back to the example of your um, your friend, he saw something that merited a change in the in the population care practice. Mm -hmm. And for example, like uh, with African and black black men, um, uh, colorectal cancer rates, uh, screen rates have gone up, but mortality persists. So part of that is an artifact of the, of detection, obviously. Um, you know, you're detecting stuff and you're bringing in the scope, but we they have the population health doesn't understand what are the differences genomically, culturally, I mean, those things. We're not going to close the mortality gap. That's and that's where doctors doctors with the right tools can make can make the difference. So the power of the people at the ground level who are able to yeah get to know, touch, feel, see. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 you know it, it's it, it sounds corny, but it's it, it's true. I mean, that, uh, and there is something about the emotional connection that promotes healing. I'm not trying to get all touchy-feely with you here, but um, again, it boils <laughs> oh, please down do. To, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it boils down to being able to establish a regular relationship with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where, uh, if you read Topol's book, that's where AI, he thinks, plays the most valuable role is providing you with context and information about the patient and giving the patient the opportunity to express themselves uh, and share information uh, with their doctor in a, uh, you know, trusting environment. 
Absolutely. That human connection, right? It, um, yeah. How do we, how do we humanize medical care again? Yeah. And I think, again, I think the, uh, yeah. So we started off by talking about how the internet sort of dehumanized care, but I think we've come full circle apart from all the cancel culturing about COVID the technologies we do have now can be very useful tools for making what is the ultimate human enterprise uh, even more human. Very nicely put. Very nicely put. Well, Dr. Goldberg, how can, uh, how can anybody get involved or, or, or find out more information about the work you're doing at the Center for Medicine and Public Interest? Well, they can just email me at uh, rgoldberg at cmpi.org. Uh, I always read my email, bad or good. And I am occasionally a little less so on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Dr. Bob Goldberg. I just find Twitter to be like, <laughs> I can't, I can't figure it out. It's just you know, a lot of people like to hide behind screens and it's just like, we yeah, yeah. here, you know, yeah. going back to the yeah. social media. Thanks. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Wish you the best of luck. Thanks for taking time to join us here on healthcare Americana. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. That's it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for tuning in. For more information on direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. To check out all of our episodes and listen to past ones, visit healthcareamericana.com. Again, I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. New Era Health Plans brings a unique solution to health insurance. We offer private insurance that allows you the freedom of choice of any doctor, any hospital, anywhere. New Era offers modern, flexible health insurance, life and supplemental, Medicare and education resources. We are a national agency licensed in most states. New Era emphasizes educating our clients and helping people make smarter decisions that deliver value and peace of mind. Our plans allow our customers to save 25 to 50% each month while providing transparent health benefits at a price that actually makes sense. New Era Health Plans is committed to providing the best service to self-employed business people, individuals, and families. We are an endorsed vendor of the Free Market Medical Association and believe in the power of free market medicine. For more information, visit NewEraHealthPlans.com. New Era Health Plans, modern, flexible health insurance plans. New Era Health Plans, Inc. is an independent field marketing organization representing Philadelphia American Life Insurance Company. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com 
and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.